Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Inside Ulster, the Bell Tales Rugby Podcast. I am not Neve Campbell, but Jonathan Bradley, rugby correspondent of the Belfast Telegraph. While our usual host is in NYC, I am joined by my colleague Adam McKendry, as always. And since we last spoke, we've had a much-needed win for Ulster, setting up a last 16 Champions Cup tie against Leinster. A Six Nations squad for Ireland that has raised and dashed the Six Nations hopes of several Ulstermen as well as the latest developments on John Cooney and the news that we won't be seeing Ulster's newest star Springbok in Belfast this week at any rate. Plenty to get through as always, so we'll dive right in. Adam, a huge win for Ulster, a much needed win for Ulster and a fairly convincing win for Ulster. I thought, what was your take on the 22-11 victory over Seal? First of all, I'd just like to say thank you for clarifying you're not naive because I, I was very confused when just I walked in Just in case here. anyone uh, anyone was confused. Just in case Neve's voice broke about 20 octaves overnight, <laughs> you know. I don't know if I can speak as fast as Neve speaks. <laughs> um, yeah, like, well, great win for Ulster. Like, for, first and foremost, you've just got to say this was a really badly needed win. And I think, yeah, you made a very important point there which is that it was a convincing win as well because obviously they had won in that run which was in Connacht but did anybody sort of look at that win and think to themselves that was a convincing win absolutely not because it was a continuation of the bad run of form because you ended the game thinking jeepers they nearly well nearly drew that I suppose yeah exactly so it's like four points on the board but you're still coming away thinking this team's in trouble. It was still a poor finish to that game, whereas actually the sale, if you look at it really when we're talking about it being convincing, it was a convincing last quarter because the game was in the balance up until then. Exactly, and I turned to you and our colleague Kieran whenever Ulster scored uh, it, it was Rob Herring's try that Ulster went ahead and I said well we all know how Ulster finished the game so they're actually still three points behind whenever they were four points ahead, so um, I think that that's probably the thing that will please Ulster most is that for the first time since oh, probably the Munster game down in Toman Park where they didn't necessarily score at the end but they at least managed to close out the win in the dying stages of a tight game that's the first game where they've managed to professionally close out a game the way that you would expect a team of their calibre to do so and not only just to close it out but to do it so convincingly like Seal barely fired a shot until they were 11 points behind you know and Ulster don't catch the restart and they have that one attack at the very end there but apart from that Seal didn't do very much in the second half because Ulster just dominated the play they did they finally got to grips with Rob Dupree's ridiculous aerial bombs they uh yeah after about 120 minutes <laughs> of it because he was brilliant in the first game as well he was yeah I've got to say they've got a star on, his, on their hands with uh with Dupree, but I think, yeah, just given everything that Ulster have been through over the last sort of month, month and a half, I think if you looked at the position they were in just on paper, you know, four points ahead with about 15 minutes ago, I can't remember the exact sort of timings of, of the tries, but, you know, four points ahead in a game you have to win, 
you would have probably said that Ulster were going to come under a lot of pressure in those final few minutes and they were going to be hanging on for dear life and you really wouldn't know how it would go given the past few weeks. But they really did lay down a marker in terms of just finishing the game off. Cooney was so good off the bench and helping close things out. I thought the bench just in general added a lot of impact, which is something that they haven't quite had over the last few weeks and Dan McFarland has said that as well. So Probably was picked for that as well, do you think? Exactly, yeah. I mean, you probably looked at that bench and you thought, Rob Herring not starting Tom Uta- I mean as good as Jeff Tamang Allen has been over the last few weeks you know you you put Tom Utul on the bench as opposed to starting him I know I know actually in fairness that's sort of the role that he has played for the majority of his Ulster career but even so you would sort of think with Marty Murray Tom Utul would be the next cab off the rank but I don't know JTA is uh He's been going well. He's uh, my pick for player of the year already. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how he plays. Just the fact that he <laughs> approaches media interviews with such verve and gusto. Like he's getting my vote no matter what happens for the rest of the year. I mean, in fairness, he, he didn't go eighty minutes this week, or, or that was even a short 70. stint. For him, yeah, yeah, that was a very short stint for him. Uh, but he was extremely good. Again, you know, another scrum penalty as, as much as Bevan Rod very much disagreed with the decision of the referee. Uh, another scrum penalty won. Another Which is effective a huge game moment of the because um, it's obviously a kickable penalty and it's mm. on, well, it's, the, it's against the head. Obviously, it was on sales put mm-hmm. in, but the fact that it was a kickable penalty and they just met, well, maybe messed up is too strong a word. They'd got into the 22. And they had the knock on through the little Billy Burns um, chip kick over the top. And you just thought that that was a big moment in the half gone because that was their chance to go in ahead at halftime. And you thought they had lost that sale, had to put in. There were only a couple of minutes left before halftime. Um, so to get that penalty at that time was a huge moment in the game. Maybe it didn't loom as large later on with the tries coming after the turn, but I thought that was a big, big moment in the game too. Well, it felt a lot bigger because I think the first half Ulster were still Ulster, you know, for over the last few months. Like, I think you still saw a lot of the same hallmarks of that team that have been struggling since the start of December because for, for all the uh, for all the talking of must-win game, you know, the first sort of 15 minutes, it was all Sale. You know, Sale kicked the penalty and then they spend a lot of time sort of down around Ulster's 22. They did, Again, they didn't look like they were doing an a massive amount with it and I was actually a little bit disappointed with Sale on the whole Uh, as much as Ulster were good in shutting them down I thought they were a bit toothless in certain areas but for the first half you still sort of thought this is still the Ulster that we've started to grow used to it was only sort of in the second half after Ben Curry scores what what was a superb try by the way like (laughs) give Sale credit they scored an absolute worldie of a try off the off the line out but after that, Ulster just sort of snapped out of this funk that they've been in in the space of a minute and dominated the final half an hour. And that, to me, above all else, above the fact that you've qualified for the last 16 of Europe, above the fact that you won the game, the fact that Ulster just put their foot on Sale's throat and never let up for the rest of the game, I think that's the most important thing because that signifies a mindset change to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the forwards were really, really good throughout the game. But once they got that upper hand in the final quarter, they didn't seed it at all. And that's that's where we've seen a lot of problems with Ulster over the last seven weeks when they have had these moments of momentum 
then they haven't always capitalised on it. They've let the other team come back. And most crucially, when momentum's gone against them, they haven't been able to rest it back. So I think to weather the sin-binning period at the start of the second half, to come back from that, regain the upper hand, and then to hold on to it was a real, real important step forward from what we've seen. And building on what we saw against La Rochelle in terms of meeting the physical challenge head on, getting parity or better um, in the forward exchanges against another very physical team. You know, they were missing a lot of players, but like Ulster were missing Henderson as well. You know, they were missing Rory Sutherland, um, a few other guys that would be, Marty Moore, obviously, um, he would all be in that first choice pack as well. So I don't think you can look too much at the guys that Sale were missing and saying that they were uh, denuded in any way from what we had um, seen over at the AJ Bell either. So, Dan McFarland has been very, uh, I suppose, consistent in his messaging that a turner was a corner wasn't going to be turned immediately, that it was going to be a more gradual thing. And I guess what we've seen the last couple of weeks has probably backed that up. They've not hit their stride. They've not hit their 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 performance just with the flick of a switch, but they look like they're building back into it. And I guess the thing is, how much confidence would you have that their struggles are now behind them, firmly behind them? Firmly behind them, no. Uh, like, let, let's get one thing straight. Ulster have won a game. That doesn't mean that they're suddenly going to win out for the rest of the season. We're looking at double winners here. Like... Um, and I know I've I've sort of jumped from one extreme to the other, but you know, just because you put one win on the board, if they come into training this week all complacent that their struggles are behind them, then all of a sudden you're gonna find yourself coming unstuck against a very talented I know, and we're gonna get on to talk about this, but a very diluted stormer side, but they're still strong enough that they're going to cause you problems. And I mean, as I said, we still saw in that first half that Ulster were still sort of marred down. They weren't playing with that fluidity, a lot of drop balls. They struggled with the high balls whenever Dupria put them up. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that Dupria was putting up some absolute stunners. But equally, you know, every time you sort of felt like they were starting to build a, a bit of steam, they got the knock on or there was a forward pass, or someone crossed in front of the other. Like it, There were still sort of areas where you sort of thought to yourself, they're still forcing it too much. And then in the second half, they just went down to what Ulster have been doing best this year, which is go to your mall and let them take it over the line. Whenever they got in close, they picked and went and got over. Like They were held up twice. I know Dan McFarren said he thought he got they got at least one of those over. I don't think you're able to tell anything under those pile of bodies. And in the end, I suppose it doesn't really matter because... It's, what, it's one of win. those where on the balance of probability, they almost certainly scored, yeah. but you couldn't see it on the replay. Uh -huh. And we did see one of those in the uh, Leicester Ospreys game that mm -hmm. was actually awarded as a try, yeah. um, which was interesting. But I don't think, yeah, once they went to the team, I don't think you were getting those scores because... You couldn't see a grinding, yeah. even though I think we all know they probably did get it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just from where they were starting and where they finished in all well, likelihood. I, I always say whenever a team, it, whenever you go to the TMO to decide to try, you always look at the team who's potentially scored and how they react. If they immediately walk back to the halfway line, you know they've scored. But 
if they're all still milling about the 22, they, they're not sure themselves or they don't think they've scored. And Ulster never went back to the halfway line. So I think they sort of knew that e- either they knew they scored, but they were it was never going to be able to be proved or they knew they hadn't actually scored. So I, either way. But to get, to get back to the original point, look, Ulster are, as you say, on the right track. And I don't think anyone can deny that. You know, La Rochelle was an improvement. As much as I said last week that, you know, I, I don't think necessarily they've they've made a massive stride forward. It was an improvement. This week, I think, was another improvement. And that's all, that's all you want to see from this team is you just want to see them getting better and better slowly and slowly. I understand that they had to be better this week in order to win. You know, the, this was a must week win or must win week. But you still just wanted to see those gradual improvements to show that they're getting back. Like there was never going to be a a week where they would just immediately turn it all around and they would go back to being the Ulster team that you think they should be. You know, that that was never going to happen. It, it could have happened after the Leinster game because, you know, it's just one bad week and you snap back into it. But whenever you get yourself into a run like this, the only way you're getting out of it is by working hard and getting through it slowly but surely. And the longer the run goes on, the longer it will take for you to get back up the other side. So I almost think of it like sort of like going down a valley. You know, in order to get back up to the top of the valley, it's the same it's the same size on the other on the other side. So the further you go down, the further you've got to go back up. So um I think Ulster are now very much on the way back up and I think this will be a massive confidence booster like even just think about the fact that they've got uh, a last 16 game in the Champions Cup to look forward to like you've got that on the horizon the difference between thinking that even though it's Leinster the difference of knowing that you have a knockout game in the Champions Cup to look forward to as opposed to a knockout game in the Challenge Cup where no team in the Champions Cup wants to be some teams might end up using it as, as an advantage later on by winning it, but no team wants to drop down from the Champions Cup into the Challenge Cup. Just knowing that you have that game to look forward to is a massive confidence boost. And having the win on the board in the way that they did it in the second half, I think the confidence will be higher and you will hopefully see the performances follow. They just now have to make sure that they still stay in this mindset of we are still building you know it's it's not like Ulster have turned this around just like that they have work still to do they have a long way to go to still be back to where they were but they are back on the right track I think yeah yeah I think that's that's the main point really because part of this horror run that they've been on is it didn't greatly impact their ambitions for this season just because of the timing of it so the format of the Champions Cup allowed them to still make the knockouts. It's a terrible format, but that's not Ulster's fault. They took advantage of the bad format. Won one game, they're in the knockouts. That's where they wanted to be. I said before the season started that I think this team should be finishing second in the table. I think a good season would be a place in the final of the ERC and getting as far in Europe until you meet one of the big I suppose the big four, we'll call them, in Leinster, La Rochelle, Saracens and Toulouse. I think that's probably fair. Now, you can make the argument that their poor performances across the first three games, well, it's probably not fair to call all three of those performances poor, but certainly their first, their poor performances over the first uh, 120 minutes 
of your... I was going to say one and a half. <laughs> yeah, have ensured that they are playing one of those big four a lot earlier than would otherwise be the case. But what do you think very quickly about the prospects of this last 16 tie with Leinster? There's a lot of water to go under the bridge. For me, the crucial thing is that it's two weeks after the Six Nations when Leinster could have, as we saw at the weekend... 14 of their 15 starters were involved. And the only reason that it wasn't 15 was because Michael Alatoa was playing tight head in place of uh, Tag Furlong. He was being managed into the Six Nations. So Yeah, nothing like replacing an Ireland international with a Samoan international. Yeah, but will he be first choice for Samoa? <laughs> or will JTA get the nod? That's the big topic that I'm going to be monitoring for the rest of the season. But aside from that, what do you think about this last 16 tie. I know there's so much uh, so much rugby to be played before then. So do you think it's a positive for Leinster that it's coming straight after the six, two no, weeks after the Six Nations? No, not at all. Nations? I think it's a huge positive for Ulster that our Ireland, even when Ireland haven't been great, they've always taken their challenge over the last three years into the last weekend. I think the reality is that some of those Leinster players are, that will be playing come that last 16 tie, will not play another game for Leinster until then. The flip side of that is that the Ulster involvement, as we'll come to in the Six Nations, is going to be limited. Mm. And I think Ulster can build quietly away through this period, whereas Leinster really aren't going to have an opportunity to think about this game, by and large, until it comes. And I think that's an opportunity for Ulster to catch them cold. Yeah, we, we did see that whenever... They played each other in, in 2019 and Leinster had possibly the worst performance they've had against Ulster in a knockout game down at the Aviva. And Ulster nearly caught them out and nearly beat them. It could happen again. I do think Ulster go into this game as massive underdogs and I don't think I'm in any way alone in, in thinking that. And I think... There is also an argument that whenever you have that many players playing for Ireland, there is still a degree of chemistry that's going on there. Even if you're not playing together for your province, you know, you're still seeing all your teammates down in camp, down in Carton House. Most of the team will be from Leinster anyway. So you're going to be playing with each other on the pitch for large portions of the Six Nations too. And you know they'll be managed pretty well sort of that week week and a half coming out of the Six Nations too so there's a degree that there some of those guys will be a bit more sharpened because they're coming out of an international window so coming straight out of that back into a back into a European game there won't really need to be much of a an incentive to keep yourself at that elevated level because you're going straight from five big games into another big game and always you know interprovincial derby it's it's hard to get up uh, hard not to get up for that so uh look as you say there, there's a lot of time to go until we get to that game and we still don't know if Ulster are going to continue on this upward trajectory we think they will I mean look I, I can't see them sort of sticking in this rut for another three months or sorry two, two months and a I mean, bit they've got a very but... tough run of fixtures during the Six Nations because Glasgow are better than a lot of people mm -hmm. realise. Um, I think going to the Sharks is going to be very difficult. The Sharks blow a little bit hot and cold. It'll depend on the team selection, but that's difficult. And then you've got Cardiff away. So you've got three three away games across the Six Nations. You're playing in two different continents. 
and you could be missing. You know, we don't know what injuries are going to happen, so you could see more away or kept with Ireland, especially for that uh, trip to Durban, if there's any inkling that any of them are going to be needed mm. um, by Ireland. But, I mean, I guess that's all... Uh, that's all for a later podcast. What I would do mm. want to talk about is um, the Six Nations squad. Your uh, your thoughts on it. So we last recorded on a tu- on last Tuesday. This was announced on Thursday. So you've had some time to digest to think about it. Five Ulstermen in the squad. Do we think anybody is unlucky to miss out? Um, was there anybody that you're surprised to see in there? Unlucky to miss out. I mean, the one I would say is unlucky is Tom Stewart, just because I think he's made such an impact with Ulster. Now, he's still raw. We've seen him. He's conceded several penalties, got a yellow card. So there's still that little bit of youthful naivety almost. Uh, And naivety is maybe not the right word, but he's still just got a little bit of a little bit to learn sort of around the nuances at mall time and breakdown. So, but certainly in the loose, he's a really destructive ball carrier, like very similar to what Shane and Kelleher can do in the loose. And for the most part, he is solid at the line out, you know, like everyone he's, he's had a few uh, errant throws, but not to the, not to the extent that I think he's, he's a concern or anything. So I would, I was sort of thinking that this maybe could be a window where he could maybe get called up, especially since he seems to have edged Rob Herring a little bit out of the way, not to the extent that there's a definite one and two in terms of the packing order, but just, you know, the fact that Ulster did not start Rob Herring in a must-win European game, that would have been unthinkable a year ago. Like, he was your go-to guy at hooker. And now you're bringing him off the bench because you feel like you want to start Tom Stewart and Herring offers more stability coming on off the bench. So I thought maybe with the World Cup coming up, this could be a a time where you could bring Stewart in. But equally, I don't think Herring has done anything to deserve being dropped. So, you know... <laughs> where, where do you where do you fall on that? It's it's maybe more a personal preference of would you rather he looked at someone potentially for for the World Cup or do you stick with the tried and trusted with the World Cup in mind? So Stuart was probably the one that stood out for me in terms of not being included. Apart from that, I given the run that Ulster have been on, there's probably not anybody else that I thought was unlucky. Not yeah. to be called up. I think Timoney was unlucky, but I think Timoney was unlucky in the sense that Gavin Coombs really came back into it and we know that he can play second row as well as back row. I think we probably talked about this last week, whether it was on the pod or whether it was just to each other. We talked about it. Um, Ryan Baird's the same, can play second row and there's that little bit of added versatility I suppose I think Timoney's still been playing relatively good rugby through the bad run and I guess it was a straight call between uh, Joe McCarthy and Kieran Treadwell there so um, yeah I, th- I think Treadwell's gone a little bit off the boil o- over the last few weeks and that's probably see that this is where sometimes the team performances can affect the individual 
and what we have been talking about this, how Ulster's run could affect some players. You know, as you say, Timoney hasn't been playing bad recently, but whenever you're not playing in a winning team, your own performance looks worse. Like you could be playing at a nine out of ten level in a in a winning team or in a team that's losing, and it can look like a seven out of ten performance just because you know you you're you're not sort of leading the team to a win and that that's unfair on guys like Timoney and Treadwell but it's just the perception whenever you know you're you're trying to stand out in a team that's not picking up wins and I think that's probably what's gone against them this time you know whenever you look at how Munster kind of the anti-Ulster over the last couple of months were there on the up and you've got Gavin Coombs as leading them to wins his performance is probably haven't been all that much better than Timoney's. But it's just the fact that, you know, he's on a team that's winning that sort of influences the decision. And I think that's probably why a few a few guys haven't been called up this time. And it's a shame, but I, I can't really argue too much. Like, if, if you said to me, does, does Timoney deserve to be in over Coombs? I'd say probably not. Does Coombs deserve to be in over Timoney? Probably not, but whenever it's like a straight shootout, I think over the last couple of months, you'd go Coombs over Timoney. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about Jacob as well, because when mm. it comes to um, Ulster players, that the perception was they were, were maybe fortunate to get in there. Uh, certainly on social media, Jacob uh, was the name that was being bandied about. Now, I thought that was as sharp as we've seen him since he's come back from injury and I thought that was as confident as we've seen him back from injury they were attacking flashes it was nice interplay with a few of the other um, guys that didn't make the Ireland squad in uh, Mike Laurie and James Hume there were some good moments on the counter by and large did well under the high ball um, I thought he and Rob Little actually both played well Um in the back three. What do you think it says about where Jacob's at that one, he is still in the squad and two, that I suppose off the back of remaining in the squads that he had what was a performance that really was a good bit better than what he'd uh, been able to put out recently since he came back from injury. Yeah, I was impressed by him. Um on Saturday I really was because again he was one of the ones that started a bit slowly dropped a couple of those high balls and again I put that down more to Dupreya than than any of the Ulster back three but one of the things that we just haven't seen Jacob in over the last few weeks is space like he just hasn't had the space to run into and there was one in the first half where he caught a deep ball and it looked like he had acres of space if he just ran left and he seemed to run straight into the first guy in front of him. It's like, we just want to see you stretch your legs. You know, we know what a destructive ball carrier he is whenever he gets ahead of steam up. And then the second half, he found that space and he gave us a real reminder of what he's capable of. He did a little bit for Rob Little's try, but it stood out to me more in the second half where he finally just sort of seemed to I, I don't even know what it was. I, I'd need to watch it back and sort of watch him specifically, but there were just more moments where he happened to get the ball and he had a bit of space and time to run. And whenever he gets ahead of steam up, 
it's hard to stop him. Like it takes two, maybe three guys to bring him down. So there was just that reminder that that raw talent is still there. And that's, I think, what we wanted to see. And it's probably what Andy Farrell is banking on him producing whenever he comes back into the Ireland setup. Like whenever you're playing with guys who are full of confidence and are sort of ticking along nicely, then that can sort of re invigorate you so maybe it's a case of they're wanting to bring him back into the squad and put him inside or put him beside you know the likes of uh ring rose mccluskey's still playing well even even though you know it's it's in uh the ulster team over the past few months um he's he'll be fighting for starts with you know uh, the likes of keenan low hansen you know guys who are in good form at the moment just putting him back in that environment will that unlock what we know Jacob Stockdale is capable of, you know, that peak of his powers, 2018, 2019, Jacob Stockdale, who is one of the best finishers in world rugby, like that player is still there. It's just about finding the way to unlock him again, you know, just finding a way to bring him back out because we haven't quite seen that yet. And I think it's purely just a confidence thing. So put him back in that international environment let him have the run of, of himself in training and see what he's able to produce and then find a spot for him in the Six Nations. You know, maybe it's just the Italy game. Like I, I find it I find it tough to think that he's going to work his way into the team for the first game in the Six Nations. Like the twenty three of the team. Because those three guys that you said, I mean that's the first choice back three. Yeah. So you're really looking at the twenty three jersey. Now Farrell has in the past Shown a propensity to sometimes put a centre on the bench, but with Henshaw out, he probably doesn't have the same motivation to have a centre on the bench because Aki hasn't been playing for Connacht. He could very easily go McCluskey and Ringrose in the midfield. And then you could just be talking about a battle sort of between Jamie Osborne, who has that versatility as well to be in the 23 jersey, and Jacob Stockdale. Keith Earls, of course, as well. Yeah, the, this is a this is a genuine question. Do you still consider Stockdale as a potential thirteen cover? I don't think so. I think it's been too long since we've seen him there. But at the same time, you know, we've seen in international rugby, you can see you know Keith Earls had to play centre not that long ago. Um, Jordy Murphy's played on the wing. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> Kieran Marmion on the wing against Australia. That was one that uh, Joe Schmidt always mentioned. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, like, I, I think if you can still consider Stockdale to be versatile enough to cover centre as well, then he's a shoo-in for that 23 jersey because I think he covers well, so though, many positions. Is that your backup 10, by the looks of things, is going to be Crowley, so he can play centre as well. So you sort of have that covered anyway, you would think. Mm. I don't know, like, I, th- I think... I think Cardi might be. I, I know Farrell likes Crowley, but I don't know. To me, Cardi is Burn. still. In... Sorry, Burn. Why did I say Cardi? Oh, never mind. We'll cut that. Uh, <laughs> the joys of editing. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think Jacob could be in line for that 23 jersey. But at the same time, you want to give him full games. And where do you find that? Like, it's, it, as I said, is he breaking into the starting 15 for the for the first game? 
probably not. Is it Italy where you give him a run and see what he's capable of? Probably. Can he do enough in an Italy game to force his way into the starting 15? Well, it probably depends on how the others are performing in the other games more than how he performs against Italy. But I would like to hope that he's going to get enough game time to at least show what he can do. And I think if you're Ulster, you're probably hoping that just taking him into that international environment will bring out the best in him and then send him back up the road to, to Ravenhill and he'll be able to to show that again whenever he's back in a in a white jersey or a yellow jersey as it tends to be a lot <laughs> these days. And we don't just have the Ireland squad to talk about, of course, because we also need to talk about the Scotland squad. So John Cooney's Irish exile, if you like, is approaching its three-year anniversary on the 23rd of February. Gregor Townsend was talking in London yesterday, as we record, today being Tuesday, yesterday being Monday, about John Cooney approaching him with the idea of him playing for Scotland. And the last, our last recording was the day of the Scotland squad announcement, and John Cooney had not been mentioned at all in Gregor Townsend's press conference, but when his name did come up yesterday, he, it was not ruled out that Cooney would play for Scotland or be involved with Scotland anyway this year. What do you think of this possibility? What do you think of the law being used in this way to move from one tier one nation to another? And how do you think it impacts Ulster, bearing in mind that they would lose Cooney for the games, well, certainly the Sharks game, and would lose access to him. They can, they can still call him back. It's very important to stress that Ben Healy's in the same boat, that the provinces can recall these guys from Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, same technically with Rory Sutherland. We've seen this situation with uh, Johnny Sexton when he was at what was then Racing Metro, getting called back to France during dine weeks. But just what do you make of this whole situation? I think the huge question that everyone wants answered is, you know, does John Cooney become non-Irish qualified like immediately as soon as he's called up to the uh, Scotland squad? And the answer is no, as far as I'm aware, like because it's a mid-season thing, Ulster aren't, you know, responsible for their players deciding that they're going to jump ship and and join another nation. So, But it does impact next season because we've seen this with Bradley Roberts last year. Yes, so I think that the the most interesting thing for me is he reached out to Gregor Townsend and said it's something that he would be interested in. Like that, that, like that, that was that's the most important clarification to come from yesterday. Yes, that that was the quote that stood out to me. It wasn't Gregor Townsend made the call to Cooney and asked, "Would you be interested in this?" It was John Cooney made the call to Gregor Townsend and said, "I want to be involved," which to me suggests that he's ready to put his international ambitions above his provincial ambitions, which is completely fair. Like he owes Ulster nothing. Like this is the guy who was supposed to just be the, the guy who filled in after Ruin Pinar left. And he's ended up becoming one of the most popular players in the squad. And I I think whenever you have that kind of a, an impact on a province it's hard to want to stand in that person's way just because you think 
you guys would be better off with him than without him. So that's an important distinction to make because I think when people and myself included say that they don't like this law, it's nothing to do with John Cooney. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to, at all to do with John Cooney. If there's one player that you would say you wanted to see get international recognition, it probably would be John Cooney for how well he played without getting the caps yeah. that were warranted during that spell when he was really one of the best scrum halves in uh, in Europe. And just, you know, we've seen again in recent weeks um, the amount of charity work that he does around Belfast, what he's put into the community, all of these things. But I still don't like the law. And I, sorry, not I don't like the law. I don't like the law being used for what is not its intention. I don't know mm-hmm. if there's any way around it because essentially... You know, tier one and tier two nations aren't really official designations. So you can't say, you know, yeah. that's not what this is for. Yeah, <laughs> Even ex- exactly. Like if, It's if, not what this is for. This is for the Charles Pietas, yeah. the Jeff Timanga Allens of this world to boost the Pacific nations. It's yeah. not for, uh, well, Scotland seemed to be the only <laughs> tier one nation using it, but using it quite liberally. And I, I do like the law for the, tier two nations to to put it in inverted commas because you look at the number of players that are produced by the Pacific nations that will end up going on to represent New Zealand or Australia and you do wonder like how would the dynamic of rugby be if that wasn't a possibility years ago you know let's say you you know New Zealand didn't have all the Pacific Islanders coming over and playing to them, would they have been the dominant all-conquering All Blacks that they have been for the past 20, 30 years? Maybe they would have been, but we don't know because so many of their team are, you know, I want to say, you know, imports almost from, from the Pacific Islands. So I like the law that sort of allows them to, sort of the Pacific Islands to sort of take back a bit of, their own naturally produced talent and to boost them. And obviously the more talented nations that you have, the better the international rugby landscape looks. But as you say, you can't apply it to them and not everyone. You know, if you if you start doing that, then as you say, you start getting into distinctions of tier one nations, tier two nations, which I think doesn't do anyone any favors. All right, there's the unofficial, you know, everyone knows that there's tier one and tier two nations. But as soon as you actually put labels on them, that's a detriment to international rugby. So you have to apply the law equally to everyone. Personally, it's an it's an interesting thing, actually. Like how much will Cooney actually add to this Scotland squad and I don't mean this from a sense of he's not a good player that's that's definitely not what I mean he is a very very talented player and he would be called up to the Scotland squad if he was available but scrum half is not a position that uh, Scotland are necessarily struggling with you know you have Ali Price who was called up to the Lions squad you have um, and of course now I've completely forgotten all the Scottish scrum halves like I've, I had them like two seconds ago um, do you know? I'm about to find out 
Okay, yeah. So you have Ali Price, who's called up to the Lions squad last year. Two two years ago now, sorry. Um, you have George Horn, very talented uh, guy. Ben White, very talented guy. Like, Cooney will be in that squad. Is he going to start ahead of Ali Price? Maybe, but probably not, I wouldn't think. I think Ali Price is a very talented scrum half. So are we are we talking necessarily about someone here who is going to transform this Scottish side? I don't necessarily think so. But I think if you look at what Scotland are doing, and like, one, it will depend on the form that John Cooney's in. Like, we saw him, you know, he didn't feature against La Rochelle. He played very well then when he came off the bench against Sale. But if he's not getting starts for Ulster, then it's not going to... Um, boost to Scotland cause any. I well, think is, like is we he, saw... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Is he not getting starts for Ulster because they know of his intentions and they're trying to boost Nathan Doak for next season, give him as many minutes as possible? Because if, if John Cooney... John Cooney has, has clearly had a conversation with Dan McFarland here. Like, he's, he's not called up Gregor Townsend and gone, I want to play for Scotland. And then he's going to let Dan McFarlane find out whenever all these reports come out. Like, due diligence, you're going to go and say to your club head coach, I've told Scotland I want to play for them. That means I'm definitely not going to play for you next season because you guys don't have a have a space for me. In well, but yeah, I mean, Ulster only have two contracted NIQs next year. That is Still right. under contract in Dave Ewers and... Um, Stephen Kitchoff. Um, Dwayne Vermeulen's out of contract. Jeff Tamang Allen's out of contract. I but mean, he's gonna he's gonna stay. Like that's, he's gotta that's, stay. That's now. something that probably needs to be rectified. Uh, uh, well, actually, it'll be that'll be an IRFU thing because we already know that there was something of a fuss kicked up about um, them having Rory Sutherland and Jeff Tamang Allen at the same time. So mm. it will be the same in terms of Kitchoff and Tamang Allen at the same time. Um, but naturally, a travesty. If Big Jeff has to leave, <laughs> um, but I, I, it it will it will have affected Ulster's contract negotiations with him for sure. Because if you're approaching it from, you're just recruiting him as a, as one of your squad players, one of your Irish squad players. I'm I'm right in saying like the provinces do that and then say to the RFU we have contracted so and so. If you're contracting a non-Irish qualified player the RFU become much more involved because you have to run it by them first and say, we're going to sign this player. And does that affect your pathways of development for players like Nathan Doak, like Michael McDonald, guys like that? So Ulster will know the situation with Cooney here. I wonder, is Doak getting more starts because they know that he is going to be their guy going forward? Do you think they could have afforded to do that in games of the magnitude of the last couple of weeks? I don't think so. I mean, you're talking about, well, certainly the European season anyway was on the line. I think you had to pick it. You had to pick the team that you thought was going to win. I think we did see a lot of changes, a lot of surprising changes for La Rochelle, and even I thought a few surprising selections for um, for Sale. Mm-hmm. But I think. While those were surprising selections, I think they were just selections picked in mind to win the game. But the Six Nations is all down the pipe, as it were. A massive game at Ravenhill on Friday against the Stormers. Ulster 
can really undo an awful lot of the damage from the last <laughs> couple of weeks in terms of looking like one of those teams still chasing the top two spot. The Stormers are ahead of them. They have a game in hand on the Bulls. So this run that I suppose essentially starts with the Stormers, it feels like the end of a block, but really it's the start of the Six Nations block because mm. you're not going to have those players. How big a game is this and how interesting do you find it? I wrote my column about it this week, this idea that the South African teams don't seem to be traveling at full strength for these away ERC games. It is mad to think that Ulster could go into the Six Nations in th- potentially in third place after the run that they've been on if they win this game and other results go their way. Like that to me is crazy especially when you consider the first loss was the one that essentially did for the ambitions of being top like once they lost that game they were not going to finish top because Leinster weren't going to drop enough points Mm -hmm. so basically regardless of all that's gone on in the last um, eight weeks now their ambitions haven't really changed since the final whistle of that Leinster game well like uh, Ulster could go into the Six Nations two points off second having won one game in the URC since the end of November which to me is absolutely bizarre and just goes to show you know like a good start to the season puts you in a really good position where you can actually have a wobble like this and still be in a position to to go forward but yeah like it, it is a massive game because as, as I say you know it's the difference between being anywhere between two points off second place or 12 points off second place and I think if you go into the Six Nations 12 points off second place I think that's too much I think it's not impossible I think they shouldn't give up on the possibility of finishing second but if you go into the Six Nations 12 points back it's a massive hurdle to overcome because you've got to bear in mind that they don't actually have that many games left like it feels like we're only sort of halfway through the season but also only have six regular season games left after this weekend. And three of them are during the Six Nations. Three of them are during the Six Nations. And their final three games are all at home. So, you know, the, it, it just sort of feels like there's still a long way to run. But actually, whenever you get to the end of the season, you're almost sort of into playoff rugby you know once once you come out of the six nations you're straight into the champions cup last 16 quarterfinals then the final few regular season games in the in the urc almost feel like you're like building up for the playoffs so they kind of feel like they have just that little bit of an edge and then you're back into european knockout games and you're finally into the urc knockout games so for all the talk of you know oh you know ulster have time to make up points they don't really and especially if they lost this week, they really are up against it to try and get a home semi-final. Like, we've known for a long time Leinster are going to romp to first place. So you're just trying to be the best of the rest. And this is a massive one on Friday because both both from a points perspective and you've got to put the record straight after that semi-final last year. Like, as, as much as I know rightly... Ulster are going to say in their press conference, we're not talking about the semi-final, we're not thinking about the semi-final. Whenever you stand out there and look into the whites of the eyes of the guys opposite you who so agonisingly knocked you out of a tournament that 
looked like your best chance to win silverware possibly ever you know you have a home final waiting for you and the clock's in the red and you're leading a really tough semi-final in Cape Town are you telling me that if you look at your man opposite you next or on Friday night and he's the guy that knocked you out last year you're not going to be thinking I want to get one over on this guy for that I mean I'm still bitter about Everton beating (laughs) Spurs in the 95 FA Cup semi-final so like these things last, you know. <laughs> oh goodness me, that's uh, you, that's the one Spurs reference you got to get in. I'll give you credit. <laughs> Spurs, Spurs won on Monday night, so uh, it's been a good weekend for you. Um, it is disappointing that the Stormers have had to send the team over that they have. Like we're getting to see Evan Rose, which is probably sort of the headline from from that squad. He but looked great in doing Ulster a big favour on <laughs> yeah, he Saturday. Yeah, very night. good. Uh, this is sort of still part of him working his way back from, from injury, so I, I understand why he's making the trip and maybe some of the others aren't because he, he really does need minutes in his legs if, if he's going to sort of be ready to go whenever they, they meet up for their training camp. I think there's one sort of during the Six Nations. So No Kitschoff. Um, shows how little the Stormers care about Colin Inches. <laughs> <laughs> you you were hoping that they would potentially have like some press conference in in, in preparation and uh, I, I mean it, it would have uh, there would have been good mileage there for for this week <laughs> if Kitschoff hadn't been coming. But, but the, this is an issue, and you, you've written a great column about it today, which uh, I would really recommend anybody goes onto onto the Belfast Telegraph Sport website and reads. But you really are devaluing the competition whenever you're essentially being forced to send this squad. Yeah, because that's that's the important distinction to make. This is not the South African team's fault. Like the Stormers, because of this deal with Qatar Airways, which um, I'm sure people listening know about and we've talked about in the column, like the Stormers to get here will go Cape Town, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, Doha, Doha, Dublin, boss from Dublin to Belfast. And this will be the fourth game in a row that they have not played in the same hemisphere. Yeah, I'd never thought about that until I read your column. Yeah. Like, they've been back and forth yeah. so many times. And bearing in mind that the only reason it's not five weeks in a row was because the game that kicked this whole run off was against Glasgow, which is in a, a different hemisphere than the one that they're actually based. So it's actually even worse than it sounds. And when this was pitched to players, we know that it was pitched as, well, it's 12 hours overnight from Cape Town to the United Kingdom or Ireland. And they're taking 52 hours in some cases to get to where they're going. That was how long it took the Stormers to get from Cape Town to Glasgow for their first game of uh, of the year. That's insanity and it's not, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And it's not the South African team's fault. And it is obviously financial, but that needs to be looked at because all you're going to have is South African teams essentially unable to field their strongest teams in what, 30, 40% of the games of the year maybe is, is what it'll come down mm-hmm. to. And that was the whole reason for the, or one of the reasons given for the problems of the Pro 12 and the Pro 14 that we weren't seeing first choice teams often enough. Yeah. There there has to be sort of an alignment between EPCR and the URC to work it out that either you are putting games together so that the Stormers can, or sorry, the South African teams in general can 
have one of these blocks of games together like maybe you make an extra uh, special dispensation for the south african teams that instead of playing home away home away in the two european blocks you play home home away away or something like that like that, that's just the first idea that's come to my head it's it's probably not feasible for for one reason or another but it takes so know, long to get these fixtures out and it takes yeah. you know they're just there has to be more forward planning and it has to mm-hmm. be what you say of I don't know how appealing it would be to be away from home for four weeks. You know, we hear an awful lot about guys coming over who have played Super Rugby that these sort of mini-tours wear after a while, but, I mean, it's surely got to be better than this. Yeah, like, well, I I don't know. Like, there's never really been anybody as asked a South African player, you know, like, what do you prefer? Guys have spoken out about the long travel and they've spoken out about the mini-tours, but... I don't think anybody's ever been specifically asked which do you prefer and neither are a good option you know like we're, we're not trying to say that just because they say oh we prefer these mini tours that right mini tours are a perfect solution let's have mini tours all over the place like that's it's a sticking plaster on what is a pretty big crack but so so you know you've, you've got to sit down with the South African players and ask them like you know what do you want do you guys want Many tours. Do you want to be traveling this much? It from an SNC perspective, and from a player safety perspective, there is surely an issue with sitting on a plane for that long, getting up, playing a game, and then getting on the plane again for that long and going and playing a game the next week. Well, they're not training uh, enough because they're spending too much well, like, time. Exactly. Uh... Like Ulster will train. Is it four days a week, and then go and play a game at the weekend? Stormers must have two training sessions a week if even if even yeah um so it's a big problem but there is obviously give and take like there is no perfect solution as you say because the initial problem is a financial one that's not something that rugby is ever particularly efficient at fixing um whenever there's a lack of money they're not good at producing more of it and the second problem is there is a element of there has to be a price of entry i suppose Mm. um for them being in the competition, travel is always going to be a drawback of them being in the competition. But the travel mm. that they're doing is not the travel that they signed up for. And that's the big issue. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, so, let's not get this mixed up. Like, we, we know travel is, has to be an issue. You're never going to play in a competition where you're in a different hemisphere to the entire rest of the competition and have it easy to uh, to travel. But yeah, there's got to be a way. Like, and and if you think that this is how they're able to play whenever they're dealing with all the travel disruption, like, how good are the South African teams going to be if you find a perfect solution for their travel? Like this. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe teams should be a bit wary of doing it. Actually. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a good thing that they have yeah. this travel disruption because it makes a level playing field for yeah, everyone else. I mean, you're 100 right. Like <laughs> we're talking about the T finalists last year, and they're, they're second and third um, in the table this yeah. this year. So, and uh, all all of them are into the. Yeah. Last sixteen yeah. in Europe as well, so uh, like it, it's it is disappointing. Like for, purely from like our perspective, you know, whenever these teams come over, you want them to bring their big players. You know, as, as nobody, nobody ever thinks of the features, like. <laughs> but like as as much as you know, we are journalists and we are sort of separated from like the fan side of things. We still want to see the big names. You know, we still want to see. No, I mean you t- you've touched on, and... you've touched on something very important there because from the fan perspective, if you're 
a floating voter, if you like, and you you don't have a season ticket and you're going to pick a game to go to, if you see that maybe not, not so much the Stormers. I think if you're interested enough to see the Stormers Springboks, you're probably interested enough to go to a game without going for the star power, if you mm. like. But say the Sharks, as an example, yeah. like if the Sharks come to bat, as we saw with the Sharks coming to Galway to play Connacht, where they got beat fairly handily um, in a game that they played, where they didn't even bring their... their um, Top coaching team about the Curry Cup coaching ticket. Um, If you were deciding whether to go to that game and you were on the fence and you thought, well, I'll go and I'll see Khaleesi, I'll see Etzebeth, I'll see Am, you know? And then you're like, well, these guys aren't coming. And then if you go once on the basis that you're going to see these guys and you don't see them, then you're probably not going to buy a ticket the next time to do it, you know? So it is an important issue for the league. I don't think Ulster will have too much sympathy for this plight this week, given how much it is a must-win game. But um, we'll wrap it up there. We'll be back next week. Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. Prediction? Come on. Okay, sorry, a prediction. <laughs> this is why we need Neve back. I think Ulster will win. Okay, we're in agreement. I, th- I, I do think it will be another improved performance as well. I think that's... A, that's possibly I was going to say it's, it's the more important thing I think for this game in particular I think the, the result is probably more important but I think very importantly as well I think Ulster will continue to have an improved performance this week too Selection will be interesting obviously without uh, you know somebody will have to come in for Stockdale into the starting lineup that'll be interesting I think there's depth in the centre obviously with um, Stuart Murray can come in um, and pair up with James Hume. And then I suppose, you know, Herring and O'Toole weren't in the starting lineup last week. And neither Henderson wasn't in the 23. So I suppose those are the two elements that you're really looking for in the team selection. But we will be back next week to look back on to look back on the Stormers game. Hopefully we will have stolen Neve back from Broadway. And uh, we will catch you next week. Thank you very much.